everyone and welcome to episode 121 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and as always I'll be your host today. We're going to talk about quite a few things this episode. Um, It's going to be a little mixed bag of a variety of points and important notes. Um, We're going to start off thinking about the Black British Voices survey that was conducted by The Voice um, and the importance of that and research like that that is currently being conducted uh, within the UK. We're going to also talk about Um, New books within Black British history. I talk a lot about books uh, on this podcast and I think over the years I've recommended so many. So if you're the type of person that buys the books I recommend, then I'm sorry. Your shopping list is about to get a little bit longer. Um, So I have a few books to recommend and talk to you about today. Um, And I also wanted to kind of bring in the theme of Black History Month this year, which is saluting the sisters, saluting our sisters. Um, And just think about what that means, think about what it means within publishing and within some of the books that are coming out and also thinking about what that means in regards to who we are celebrating, who we are thinking about um, this October um, and in Black History Month and also within, you know, wider narratives of Black British history. So I thought I'd start with the Black British Voices Project, um, which is also acronym does the BBVP um, and it began in March 2020 where interviews were conducted um, and respondents were called on to complete a survey um, which then launched the following year um, and essentially it is a survey that has questioned black British people um, and asked them for their kind of thoughts, feelings, ideas about a f- variety of topics relating to life in Britain, relating to discrimination, racism, identity, and also looking at their views on different institutions. And I remember when this survey came out, actually, and I remember doing it. Um, and it's very cool, actually, to think that my opinion is represented in this national survey. It is the kind of first of its kind and the biggest of its kind. Over 10,000 people were surveyed within Black Britain. And I think it was this week or last week that the findings have been released in 104-page report, they've been analysed and the data sets are available to be used. And I wanted to talk about why this is so important uh, within the study of history, Black British history particularly, um, because this is kind of the first of its kind. And it actually speaks to the community um, and the people, um, shall we say, black British people directly. You know, it's not you having to and as a researcher having to go through potentially a data set or data on, let's say, education or healthcare, and kind of pick out the bits that correlate to race. This is directly asking people about issues of race and, you know, asking the people that you want that information from. And it's obviously very relevant um, now. It's something that was only done three years ago, uh, while the survey even less than that. So it's quite important that we have things like this. We have surveys like this to be able to kind of paint a picture, I think, especially in the future when we write the histories of the 2020s, um, for us to be able to have these data sets, for us to be able to have these um, this information with people's opinions on of what life was like in Britain in the 2020s. Um, And some of the questions relate to that. Some of the questions relate to earlier life. Um, But it is just a very important thing. And I wanted to talk about the results a little bit, although I am just taking the analysis that's been done um, and published within, you know, um, newspapers and on websites and 
within the news, the kind of headlines, shall we say, of this survey. And the headlines are going to be, of course, the most damning and the most shocking. But I'm sure within the data, there are also uh, some patterns and trends that might be interesting on institutional levels or in community levels or in kind of different ways. But some of the headlines which think about identity and, and some of the big institutions like education and healthcare. Um, are the ones that are being reported. And rightly so, as we're kind of in a place where we're thinking about Britain um, moving forward politically uh, with the <laughs> current government that we have and some of the things that they're saying. Um, it's interesting to kind of hear, I guess, a black British perspective when it comes to that. And I thought it was also important that some of the kind of conversations around this are centred on the fact that in 2020, we now have... Um, people that are, you know, say identifying or defining themselves as black British that are maybe as as far along as fourth generation um, British and born in Britain and their parents are born in Britain and their grandparents were born in Britain. And so it's very different, I would say, or their identity in theory could be very different and their thoughts to the generations that we're used to hearing about, which is the quote-unquote Windrush generation, those post-war migrants where we have quite a lot of information on now um, as we've started to do these uh, interviews and these oral histories and these books have been written and we're pulling up the interviews that have been done and the um, recordings of, for example, a Windrush arrival in 1948. Um, this is a very different picture to the one that's been painted in this kind of post-war era. So it's very interesting to be able to have this information. Um, I wanted to, as I said, talk through some of the findings and Lester Holloway, who is editor of The Voice, has said these findings should be, and I quote, a wake up call for Britain. Um, the lived experiences of racism, this is paraphrasing it, um, in everyday life is leading many to not feel British. Um, and he especially thinks about the fourth generation black Brits um, in a sense of they are truly British, you know, um, they are not they have not immigrated here. They were born here, their parents were born here, their grandparents... Not to say that anyone whose parents and grandparents and can't identify as British, of course, that is absolutely not what I'm saying. Um, but having it been so many generations, the fact that feeling is still a little bit similar to that of those that migrated here in the post-war era is, is a little bit scary and a very concerning. And um, Lester Holloway is right to say it should be a wake-up call. I don't think it will be, but it should be. Um... The reports reveal that there is still a lot of discrimination and racism, which, again, it isn't shocking, but it just gives it gives like a footnote to it. And as silly as that sounds, but when you say things, especially, you know, if you're if you're writing something or, you know, you're speaking and, and you say, oh, you know, there's so much racism, everybody feels it. People often say, are you sure about that? Like, no, they don't. If they're not part of the community that you're speaking about, potentially. But you can footnote it now because there is there's a survey that's been done. There is data to back up the point you're trying to make, if you are trying to make that point. Um, within education, 95% of respondents believe that the UK's curriculum neglects black life and experience. And fewer than 2% of people think educational institutions take racism seriously, which I think are probably some of the most damning um, findings from this survey. 95% of respondents thinking that the curriculum uh, neglects black, black life. And I'm not going to lie, I'm surprised it's only 95 um, because there is very little by way of black life on the UK curriculum. And when we have seen in past years, countries like Wales um, bringing in a more diverse curriculum 
and Britain just literally point blank period refusing to do that. Um, it's it is very kind of shocking that people have even five percent of people have even said no. Actually, um, <laughs> we think it's well represented. Um, Two percent think educational institutions take racism seriously. Again, um, it tracks when we have instances of of racism within schools aren't taken seriously, and unfortunately, as well, um, we have to contextualize a survey and. I would probably imagine this survey being done in 2021 when I did it I had you know all the kind of racial injustices that had kind of been brought to light after the murder of George Floyd in 2020 um in my mind you know um and maybe things have changed since 2021 I'm not going to go out on a limb and say they have um but these are a snapshot of people's opinions from that time um 87% of people expect to receive substandard levels of healthcare because of their race. 79% of people believe that the police still use stop and search unfairly against black people. So there we've got three big institutions. We've got policing, we've got education, we've got healthcare, where black British people are still, you know, experiencing this discrimination that's um, influencing their opinions on whether they think these institutions are actually equitable and fair. Another interesting set of findings, I think, were to do with identity. Around 49% of black Britons consider themselves to be at least somewhat proud to be British, whilst almost half, 45%, take little to no pride in Britishness. Um, and I think that's very interesting when we think about, as I mentioned, the kind of difference in the generation we're talking about now. We're talking about people that are um, second, third, fourth generation um, and the fact that they are British, born in Britain, raised in Britain, educated in Britain, work in Britain, pay taxes in Britain and still take little to no pride in being British is concerning. Maybe not to some, um, but to me, that is quite concerning. Um, also, conversations about racism, prejudice, insensitivity and self-expression were kind of touched on. And I'm really happy they were because it's not something that is often thought about. But this idea that, um, you know, being black in Britain you can't be the kind of fullest and truest, truest version of yourself. Um, and 98% of those surveyed said that they felt they'd compromised self-expression and identity to fit into the workplace. And that means adapting speech or hairstyles with appearance um, and cultural background was cited as factors influencing lack of promotional development. And obviously, when we think about um, being black British, we often come with um, another culture that we are in most cases very proud of and the fact that people feel like in Britain especially in the workplace um, they're having to conform to these ideals of Britishness um, whether that be changing their hair or the way that they speak is also quite concerning it's not new it's not news and I'm sure you're listening to this hearing me in my let me call it my close to BBC voice as possible on this podcast. Um, maybe I'm part of that. Um, there are certain ways that you carry yourselves at home with friends, with people that you're familiar with. And there's another way you kind of carry yourself in the workplace. And that has always been, whether it's a spoken or unspoken rule, being black in this country. They also um, continued the line of questioning into conversations about lack of promotion and development within the workplace and they all kind of tying to each other and this kind of inequality in the workplace obviously can lead to a lack of earnings if you are denied promotions or you don't feel like you can go for them and that you will be afforded them because you don't fit into the workplace culture. 
um, and things of that nature. So again, lots of really important things coming out of this survey. Another reason I think it's really important is because a lot of the time we lean on data from America um, to kind of articulate racial issues in Britain. And I feel like this survey will allow us to stop doing that um, and not have to because what see are there are similar issues and that's definitely not debatable that racism functions in a similar way in both places but it is not the same and comparison is actually very um it's not very fruitful and I I say this all the time I probably sound like a broken record whenever America comes up um but it is true that we can now kind of go to this data set um, and be able to articulate some of the uh, intricacies of of Black British experiences and the racism that um, is felt a lot of the time within this country. Um, the research was conducted, I should say, by The Voice. I think I mentioned that at the start, but also with the University of Cambridge's Department for Sociology um, and a London-based management consultancy called iCubed, which was founded by two Black women. Um, So it's quite nice that, um, you know, this is a collaborative project of these three institutions, The Voice being um, a black publication, a black newspaper. It's the only, I think, national newspaper for black communities um, that has kind of survived. There has been many prior to that, uh, many publications. Um, But this one has, I think, been going on for the longest. I think it was 1981 it started. Um, and so we still have that today um, and it is still kind of serving to speak to um, some people's experiences as black people in this country. Not all. Um, and there will be nothing that ever speaks to everybody's experience because from some of the data I read out alone, um, it's clear that there aren't any kind of homogenous ideas about the experiences of being black in this country. Whilst a lot of have agreed um about compromising in the workplace or the way they see education you know this idea that 50 percent of black britons consider themselves to be proud to be british and about 45 percent take little to no pride shows a complete splitting shows that there is a lot of um diversity of thought within black people um we're not homogenous we are not all the same and i hope this data will also speak to that as well as um pulling up some of the the really big patterns and similarities that have clearly come up with this um, survey. So as we move forwards um, and continue doing this work and those historians of the future, I hope that this um, data set and this survey will be of use to people, to researchers. Um, There are also, I think, in-depth interviews um, with a subset of participants from the survey as well that can be accessed. So, you know, here's to hoping this... um, creates maybe some more accurate representations of black British people and some of the needs um, and the desires of of these people uh, in the future. So next of all, we're going to talk a little bit about some books, as I love to do. Um, And I wanted to first think about one book in particular, but it's part of a wider series by Lawrence Wishart in their Radical Black Women series. In 2021, they launched a Radical Black Women book series in partnership with the Black Cultural Archives. Um, And the series is doing a really good job of highlighting the contributions of what they're defining as radical black women to social justice movements, to activism, uh, to community work in Britain in order to, I think, really speak to the lack of of the fact that there is a lack of black women um, highlighted within black British history, something we've spoken about before. Um, 
and also uh, bring to life some of these figures that have done so much, but we don't often hear their names called and their flowers given to them. Um, so it started with um, a new edition of Claudia Jones's A Life in Exile um, by Marika Sherwood. Um, and then there was a new preface to that uh, by black feminist researcher Lola Olufemi. Um, and then there is a second book coming out in the series next week, the 14th of October. Um, and that is Girl in Bean, Mother of the Movement um, by A.S. Francis. And I have had the pleasure of reading that. Um, and it is really something spectacular so if you haven't pre-ordered that yet then I don't really know what you're waiting for and I think you should it is a fantastic book and I also mentioned um a a launch for that a launch event for that next weekend um at the Black Cultural Archives with A.S. Francis um and Stella Dadzi and uh Kelly Foster the next few titles within the series I believe and I don't know if this is in the correct order necessarily but Amy Ashwood Garvey and the future of black feminist archives by Nadia Swaby and the making of June Giovanni's Pan-African Cinema Archive by Onika Igwe and they are also commissioning other authors and writers and researchers um to create um a book based on this series in order to raise further awareness of black women's histories in Britain. Um, they've also collaborated with the Young Historians Project to produce educational resources based on the series um, and they are free to download actually and I've spoken about them on this podcast before I believe. Um, there is like a teacher pack uh, and like little workbooks for Key Stage 4, 3 and 2 I believe um, and for different age groups so that the information is relevant and digestible for them and that is also available. So within this whole kind of series it's not just you know the publication of one book, there's a whole educational movement with that and um, talks and things to get involved with. So the Lawrence Wishart Radical Black Women series which will probably uh, be going on um, over the next few months and years as these next publications come out and really highlight some of the work of black women historically in this country which very much speaks to the theme of this Black History Month saluting our sisters and here we are with the likes of Claudia Jones, Girl in Bean, Amy Ashwood Garvey, June Giovanni, um, who are all going to be, you know, celebrated within this work. I also wanted to speak about Preeti Dillon's The Shoulders We Stand On, how black and brown people fought for change in the United Kingdom, which was released on the 14th of September uh, this year, so about three weeks ago. Um, and I've also had the pleasure of reading through this and I think it's a really important book to come out kind of at this moment um, and as we kind of think about where we are within the UK and things I've said about already spoken about today in regards to like you know thinking about where Britain is how it's grappling with issues of race belonging um, and also identity things that are brought out in this survey that I've just spoken about but also you know thinking about the legacies of empire and colonization um, which are kind of really big conversations that have come up um in recent years that I feel like are still being grappled with. Some people are trying to push those conversations down so we don't have to have them sweep everything under the rug. Some people are really trying to force those conversations and make sure that Britain is being held accountable. Um, and I think there is just a tension with it all at the moment. And I think this book slots quite nicely into today's context. And um, it's all about trying to shape a better understanding of those who have essentially fought for us to have a voice in the future, um, but also 
thinking about the fight that must continue in some ways um, and, and what we can learn, I think, from those movements of the past. And there's 11 chapters and they go through um, a variety of different movements um, and events, some of which we've spoken about on this podcast, some of which we haven't. Um, it starts with um, the Indian Workers Association. It goes into the Bristol bus boycotts, um, the Mangrove Nine, the Fasimbas, the Oval Four and the Black Liberation Front, the Black Education Movement, Brixton Black Women's Group and OAD, the Grunwick Strike, um, the Battle of Brick Lane and um, the murder of Altab Ali. Asian youth movements and the Bradford 12 and then this kind of moment of 1981 where we see uh, riots and more racial tension and um, Preeti kind of ends the book in regards to uh, like its chronology in 1981 at this moment where we have this and she really kind of really nicely describes uh, this moment as a kind of culmination of all the inequalities in all the kind of major institutions like education and healthcare and policing and um, the justice system and this moment where you have this kind of intergenerational uproar and explosion of of passion and of feeling and of discontent um, that we see in 1981. Um, and then she goes on to talk about, you know, where we are now, what happens next, where do we go from here? And I quite like a part where she um, kind of shouts out and, and gives credit to a lot of the organisations that are still doing the work today and might be rooted in some of the movements she's spoken about in the book, but also ones that have um, come up more recently and have started that are still doing the work. And um, it was really nice to see that and also to remind us that the work hasn't stopped it might not look the same as it did um, as early as the 1950s or 60s, but it hasn't stopped at all. Um, it still continues. And um, I would recommend most definitely uh, this book, which has just come out. Um, it's available on hardback at the moment uh, and it is also available on ebook and audiobook. And I'm sure it will come out on paperback soon if you are a paperback book fan. I will say I am a paperback book fan, but you've got to wait for a paperback. I just wish... I know it makes sense that they they release a hardback first, but I just really wish they wouldn't because carrying a hardback in a bag where you already have like a laptop and several other books, which is the state of my bag most days, um, it can be really heavy. Um, but yeah, that's just my <laughs> my personal gripe with hardback books today. <laughs> Fun fact, which I feel like I knew but needed to confirm. Um, hardback books actually are released first because they have a higher profit margin um, because you can kind of sell them, I think, nearly twice the cost and they don't cost twice as much to produce, which you live and you learn. You learn something new every day. Um, but you really have to be patient if you want to wait for the paperback because normally it's a year after publication that the paperback comes out. So well, I'm just going to probably still be buying hardbacks even though it's a marketing and profit thing. Oh, well, the more you know. And that brings me to the end of this week's episode. Um, it is Black History Month still, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, and it's a quite a nice time, I think, um, to be thinking about black women within history. We will be getting back to some of the stories of some wonderful black women in Britain and the work that they've done historically in this country over the next few weeks. Um, and also, you know, take advantage of some of the events that are happening across the country, online, in person um, and, you know, support businesses, um, you know, that are run by black people at this time. It is a perfect opportunity. And I think it's probably best, as I have mentioned so many books that you may want to buy, um, 
you can buy those books um, from Black-owned bookshops, um, which obviously helps support them, such as New Beacon Books, um, which is in Stroud Green in North London. There is Book Love, um, which has an online bookstore, actually. And I always see them posting on Instagram and Twitter. Um, they have a, a really good social presence as well. Um, there's also Afori Books. There are Round Table Books, which is in Brixton. Um, and you can also buy books um, at the Black Cultural Archives they have a bookshop um, as well as um, the books I've mentioned today um, Preeti Dillon's from Dialogue Books you can go directly there um, and then the Lawrence Wishart series which you can get from Lawrence Wishart um, to save you shopping on the site that is owned by a billionaire please do support smaller and local bookshops um, bookshop.org is another site you can get uh, books on as well that supports um, small bookshop shops and booksellers um and if you are london based actually um the more i walk around in london it seems that i see more and more independent bookshops um so if you are on a stroll walking around then you know take a look um have a look into some of those independent shops and try and support them uh, as opposed to these giant billionaire owned corporations thank you so much for listening to this week's episode i hope you have a wonderful week goodbye